Tucson, Arizona's east side is characterized by older, once solidly middle-class subdivisions. In between pockets of 80s, 90s, and current century development, you'll find street after street of homes that went up in the shadow of the Cold War. Between 1950 and 1965, Tucson's population grew at a rate of nearly 400%. The future seemed bright in many ways. Home builders work feverishly to satisfy the demand for new affordable family housing in idyllic suburbia. In 1967, a young man and his family lived in a home built in 1963 on Desert Steps Drive between Broadway and 22nd, west of Camino Seco. That year, likely after a high school graduation, J.D. Harrell would head off to fight the Vietnam War. Before shipping out, J.D. bought a pearl ring for a girl who was part of Tucson High School's class of 1967. Sherry Tilton and her family lived in a home that once stood on a property just west of Albernon Way and north of 32nd Street. Unlike the east side neighborhood where J.D. lived, this subdivision hasn't fared as well over time as evidenced by the many homes in a state of disrepair and the many windows covered by bars. But in 1967, the Tilton family and others lived comfortable middle-class lives on a quiet cul-de-sac at the end of Winstall Avenue. Just across the alley from them was a food giant supermarket and the Cactus Shopping Center. Before 1968, that food giant and a pearl ring given by a departing soldier would be part of a tragic tale that would still resonate with lifelong Tucsonans over a half century later. December 18, 1967. It was a chilly Monday in Tucson continuing a trend that began the week before. Many parts of Arizona experienced record snowfalls. Flagstaff got 83 inches by the time it all ended. Snow even fell in some parts of greater Tucson. On Monday, the high would crest at 48 degrees. Christmas was just a week away, and the excitement of the holiday season was in the air. Lots of people looked forward to visiting Winter Haven that evening. Friday would be the winter solstice and the sun was disappearing behind the mountains west of the city at 5.23 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Those driving east on Broadway past El Con Mall, crowded with holiday shoppers, might have been listening to Color 99 KTKT. Let's drive over to Kinney's now and revive your Christmas spirit. Swell. Oh, after I try to take back what I did get, you see, the only place that wasn't mobbed was this stable, and there was this horse. <laughs> Two Kenny's Shoe Stores in Tucson, 5102 East 22nd, and the East Broadway Shopping Center. Tucson! 8,000 miles away in Vietnam, U.S. forces were embroiled in the tense Battle of Tam Quan supporting the nearly half million U.S. troops that were in country by that time was the mighty McDonnell Douglas F-4D, a fighter bomber built to destroy ground targets 
52 years ago, groups of F-4s spent time between Dallas Air Force Base in Las Vegas and Davis Monthan, performing training missions in preparation for battle in Southeast Asia. Around 5.40 p.m., a sortie of three F-4Ds took off in a northwesterly direction, headed for Nellis, each carrying a full load of 17,000 pounds of JP-4 aviation fuel. Two minutes after takeoff, Flight Lieutenant Jack R. Hamilton, an instruction pilot from the Royal Canadian Air Force, and U.S. Captain Gary L. Hughes lost all power in their aircraft. A motorist driving west on 29th Street near Alvernon saw two of the jets break off, while the third F-4D with no visible lights was completely silent as it began to slow. Hamilton was desperately attempting to steer the aircraft towards Randolph Park Golf Course when the men were forced to eject at an altitude of less than 500 feet. First, Captain Hughes. Then, at the last possible moment, Lieutenant Hamilton. The F-4D then turned onto its side and descended upside down, directly towards the food giant supermarket. It struck the rear wall of the store at 5.44 p.m. The sound must have been sudden and terrifying to the 30 shoppers and the employees of the store. Upon impact, a fire quickly broke out. Then, less than a minute later, a massive explosion ensued, engulfing most of the store. In those brief moments between impact and explosion, shoppers and employees had made their way out. The explosion took out all the windows, and witnesses recalled the blast expelling several remaining people out of the front of the food giant. Two homes just across the alley on South Winstall were struck by the blast and fireball as well. The first call to police came at 5.47 p.m. from a home on Winstall Avenue, where a panicked resident simply stated, a jet has crashed into my neighbor's home. You remember the property just south on Winstall that I mentioned. The home that once stood there was destroyed and a 19-year-old girl named Sherry Tilton died, trapped in her bedroom, after the home was struck by one of the F-4D's fuel tanks. The other family members were able to escape, but not Sherry. A resident across the street told a Tucson Citizen reporter that the father came running from the home screaming, My baby, my baby, she's still in there. Her father recalled, We didn't even hear anything. All of a sudden, the roof started caving down on us. The fire started, and I just couldn't get her out. The home next door to the Tiltons was also destroyed. In the aftermath were the remnants of a swing set in the backyard. By the grace of God, no one was home at the time. That home is now a duplex. And both structures are oddly different than all the others in the cul-de-sac. Tucson Fire worked tirelessly throughout the night to extinguish the massive blaze and search the site for victims. Late that evening and into Tuesday morning, estimates placed the death toll as high as 30. Miraculously, only three people perished inside the food giant. 34-year-old Robin Bush, who lived with her disabled husband Glenn and their two children, a 14-year-old girl and a 5-year-old boy, in a home on West Bromley Street near River and First. She had been scheduled to leave at 5 p.m. that day, but decided to work overtime to earn a little extra money for Christmas gifts for her children. 
the meat department where Robin worked was directly beneath the spot where the F4D hit the supermarket. Also killed was 55-year-old Victoria Palmer. She lived with her husband James on Monthan Stravenue, south of 22nd, about a mile from the food giant. Victoria also left behind a son, two daughters, and nine grandchildren. And the third victim was Crystal Seamond, who lived with her husband in a retirement community near Benson. She was the last victim identified. A temporary morgue was set up at Brings Memorial Chapel, then located on Scott Avenue. Late that night, a friend of the Tilton family went in with the somber task of identifying Sherry's body. On one hand was a Tucson High School class ring with the initials ST. On the other hand was the pearl ring JD had given her before leaving for Vietnam. It's hard not to wonder how long it was before JD received the sad news. A simple public record search showed there is a JD Harrell living in Tucson. He is 70 years old, making him 18 in 1967. Whether he is the same JD, we don't know. But if he is, does Sherry ever cross his mind? Though it was a lifetime ago. As for the home that now stands where Sherry died, it was rebuilt in 1970. The lot stood empty for nearly two years. Records show the house was only sold once in 1973. Whether the occupants are renters or the family of the original owners, I wonder if they know what happened there at Christmas time in 1967. A charter school is now located where the food giant once stood. Does anyone at that school know anything about the crash? And do the scores of people that pass on Alvernon every day know anything of it? Most Tucsonans probably don't these days. But many people of a certain age will never forget that December night over a half century ago. You're listening to the premiere episode of the Tucson History Podcast from 1030 The Voice. I'm your host, Greg Geringer. With us in studio, it's John Holden. He had a long career with the city of Tucson. He's an expert on Tucson history and also the history of first responders here. John, tell us a little about what it is you did for the city. I was a communications technician. I did the electronics work on two-way radio systems uh, for the police and fire department. I was part of a team that was responsible for maintaining that system. But I spent about almost 30 years with the city doing that type of work. I uh, also uh, kind of became a repository for odds and ends knowledge-wise. <laughs> and such. I've always had an interest in Tucson's history, but you know, pick up little pieces of uh, information from here and there. And uh, it was quite interesting to uh, actually talk to some of the people that were still working for the city as dispatchers who were there on the uh, night in December of 67. You and your family lived not far away from 29th and Alvernon. Where was your house located? We lived on uh, 24th and Van Buren, about two miles due east of where the plane went down. And what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of that night? It's one of those things that it comes back and haunts you 50-odd years later. And we were very much aware that something wrong was going on because our house shook. There was just one of these resounding thuds and best we could tell it was probably when the explosion took place with the fuel tanks we looked out our back door and you could see off 
through the trees uh, across the street, this huge red fireball just rising up, you know, and the flames uh, were reflected in the smoke that was already coming out of that. It was a really, really scary sight. And we were familiar with jets. We'd lived underneath the flight path of Davis Monthan uh, for a number of years and very much uh, aware of the sounds that F4s make. And there wasn't any sound, really, except for this boom. The F-4 has a nasty habit. The aerodynamics, when it loses power, is roughly approximated by a brick. And that was just one of those things, when, when it went in, it went in hard. The fire department and the police department were dispatched, you know, almost immediately. If the pilot had managed to get to Randolph Way, just north of 22nd Street is where the entire police and fire department dispatch was. And they were lucky not to be involved with that at the time. They had a, uh, a, a most fortunate, unfortunate, you know, combination there at the same time. They they were missed, but for those folks that were there at the store, uh, that definitely left an impression, the ones that survived. The ones who did not, obviously, uh, you know, who knows what went through their mind in those few seconds. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's now a charter school where the food giant stood. The Cactus Shopping Center's long gone. But otherwise, the immediate neighborhood around Alvernon and 29th isn't all that different than it was 50 years ago, right? Pretty much, yeah. There, there are very few changes. Keene Elementary School was right over there, and TUSD closed the school down because of the safety issues. But it took them 45 years to, to do that. Uh, so it was a slow change on that. The neighborhood can be characterized as more than rough nowadays. Uh, but at the time, yeah, it was a upper middle class, uh, you know, working class uh, neighborhood. And the folks that were in there uh, didn't really pay much attention to the air base. It was there. And, uh, yeah, people saw jets flying over all the time. And the nature of it being a mile and a half from the end of the runway, they were usually fairly close to the ground, either on takeoff or if they were landing in the other direction. Uh, made it real rough. Uh, you know, just all of a sudden woke up and said, maybe we shouldn't be here. And also back in 67, the base extended a little further to the west or to the north, correct? Craycroft was the western boundary of Golf Links Road. And the uh, base extended up roughly to along the alignment about 29th Street, uh, west of uh, Beverly Street, all the way down to uh, Swan, which wasn't there at the time, was just extended south to uh, meet up with the uh, Golf Links extension. So let's go back to December 18th, 1967. We know that the U.S. captain, who was the co-pilot, when he ejected, he still came down within the confines of Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. But the Canadian pilot, where was it that he landed? He came down in a uh, swimming pool on Winstall. You know, he made a wet water landing, uh, but he almost ended up in the middle of the fire. Uh, so he was fortunate that he was able to punch out when he did. The jib, the GIB, uh, the guy in back, uh, he went out first uh, because you had to get out. The backseater always had to get out first because you didn't want to be taken out by the uh, canopy coming off. Uh, so they were able to uh, both make a successful exit from the aircraft. The pilot Hamilton had literally seconds to make the decisions that he made. But it's important to stress that he did everything he possibly could. The loss of life could have been far greater had that aircraft uh, actually gone a longer distance and plowed into the uh, Citation Gardens subdivision. Uh, Again, more, you know, family homes like that, a lot of kids and such. And that could have been a lot worse, whether it was intended or it just happened. The fact that the plane came down where it did prevented a lot of loss of life. The uh, 
plane came in kind of right behind the butcher shop in the food giant and the refrigerator sections and such like that being built to uh, resist heat uh, probably deflected a lot of that heat and allowed the people inside the store to get out a little more uh, uh, quickly on that and safely. With Hamilton and Hughes being based out of Nellis, we really don't know how they might have been questioned after the incident, whether that occurred in Las Vegas or whether that occurred here. But you have personal knowledge of the fact that there was somewhat of an inquiry here after the incident. I know the DM staff uh, went through the flight line personnel and they, you know, everything from uh, heavy duty questioning. Did you touch the airplane? What did you touch on the airplane? Uh, Did you fuel the aircraft? Uh, Things like that. In fact, a friend of mine had been uh, planning to go out and celebrate his birthday that evening. Couldn't get off the flight line because he was being dragged off and almost handcuffed to uh, the table there until they could uh, get board of inquiry started. Unfortunate that they didn't become more open about what happened other than a plane had a hydraulic failure. That's about the extent of what you saw on the media reports at the time there. Very little detail information about what happened with the aircraft. I'll take it for what it was. It was wartime. And anything with the military was pretty well held close to the the vest on that. So the simple answer that the U.S. Air Force gave for the cause of the crash was hydraulic failure. Can you explain how that would have caused the engines and basically the entire airplane to just shut down? Well, your engines, uh, uh, controls and such, uh, the flight controls... Uh, were all tied in because of hydraulics. That could explain rolling to one side and then taking the dive because of the uh, the physics involved with it. Uh, you couldn't uh, control the aircraft. They're not like fly-by-wire like you have now where, you know, the computer controls everything. You still had, you know, stick-and-rudder type flight, and that uh, control system, uh, if you lose the pressure on it, that makes it real hard. That aircraft was not designed to glide. It was designed to fly. And as a result, uh, any interruption in the uh, forward motion uh, <laughs> usually ended up in a downward direction. One of the things that's always stood out to me about this story is roughly 30 people were inside the store, which to me for 5.45 p.m. seems like a rather small number. Back in that time, even a supermarket wasn't all that super. It was still pretty much small, similar to your you know, convenience stores like a Quick Trip or Circle K, the newer models that are huge. It's a similar situation there. So the you know, 30 people in the building was pretty remarkable, even at rush hour. There had been an accident, a motor vehicle accident right at 29th and Alverna at the intersection just prior to that. So uh, the fact the police department was already on scene. So when they got the reports over to send it to their dispatchers, hey, something big has happened here. We didn't have 911 back. Then you had to call the seven-digit number for a fire dispatcher. Uh, so their phones uh, exploded pretty much then. And uh, uh, between the radio traffic and the uh, reports coming in from them, uh, the citizens, uh, they knew they had their hands full. And finally, John, in the weeks and months after the crash... What were some of the changes at Davis-Monthan that Air Force officials made? The predominance of the flights were redirected. Uh, The winds are always the one controlling factor about whether you turn aircraft out to the southeast or to the northwest. But the uh, general uh, change of the uh, operations at Davis-Monthan tried to route the aircraft uh, out toward the direction of Benson, down toward the southeast. And then Promptly, uh, you know, after uh, development started out there, all of a sudden, all those areas started filling up with houses underneath them. 
the city got real, real strong about their enforcement of not putting high-capacity buildings or houses directly underneath the flight path uh, in the area of Rita Ranch and such like that. There are spots that were supposed to be for commercial development, and they said, no, you're going to have a store with that many people. You can't put it underneath the runway approach. So the city did some good changes on that. The Air Force tried to mitigate the uh, operations as best they could. With the weather being the prime consideration, uh, they can't always you know, fly where they want to. But um, there's no crosswind runway there, uh, such as you have at Tucson International. So you're stuck on that one main runway, and that's it. Thanks, John. And that's going to wrap up this premiere episode of the Tucson History Podcast. Every month, we'll have a new episode featuring memorable moments from the history of the old Pueblo. I'm Greg Geringer. Thanks for listening. The Tucson History Podcast is a presentation of 1030 The Voice and Bustos Media. Welcome to the premiere episode of the Tucson History Podcast from 1030 The Voice. I'm Greg Geringer, and coming up next, The Crash.